Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, this is Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we'll discuss non-small cell lung cancer with an EGFR exon 20 insertion mutation. I'm joined today by several very important figures in the field. First, from Yonsei University College of Medicine, Professor Byung-Chul Cho, Director of the Lung Cancer Center at Yonsei Cancer Hospital in Seoul, South Korea. Cho, thank you for being with us today. Stefan, uh, good, to, good, to, good to hear you uh, from you. Uh, I wish you have a happy Lunar New Year. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. Rosario Garcia Campello, the head of medical oncology and the thoracic tumor unit chair at the University Hospital of Coruña, Spain. Rosario, thanks for joining today. Hi, Stefan. We're really pleased to be here with all of you. Thanks so much for the kind invitation and looking forward for a great discussion. Great, great. And later in the episode, we'll also hear from Marsha Horn. She's the executive director of the Exxon 20 Group and CEO of ICANN, the International Cancer Advocacy Network. And as we mentioned, our topic today is EGFR Exxon 20 insertions. I think most people in the field of lung cancer are aware of EGFR mutations in lung cancer. Um, they're immensely important. The discovery of these alterations really started the field of targeted therapy. Cho, can you explain to, to our listeners why EGFR exon 20 insertions are a little different? Sure. EGFR exon 20 insertion accounts for approximately 6% of EGFR mutant NRCLC, and it's the third most common type of EGFR mutation. More than 100 EGFR exon 20 insertion variants have been reported, and these diverse uh, molecular variants and structural differences have been a challenge for the development of targeted therapy. Moreover, the unique mechanism of EGFR activation induced by axon 20 insertions causes resistance to clinically approved EGFR inhibitors. Responses to EGFR TKI was reported to be less than 10%, with median real-world uh, PFS of less than 3 months. Median real-world OS and 5-year survival rate for axon 20 insertions are also lower compared to those for common EGFR mutant NRCLC. Having said that, this subset of lung cancer has a significant unmet medical needs for new therapy. Yeah, I think that uh, it's a really important lesson. The details are so critical. And we know we need a test for EGFR, but when we're looking at the results, it's not just EGFR positive or negative. The specific mutation really matters and really makes a difference in how we treat patients. Um, Rosario, I think a great example is our frontline treatment for a common sensitizing EGFR mutation. Um, that would be a deletion in exon 19 or the point mutation in exon 21 L858R. For those mutations, our preferred initial treatment is a third generation EGFR TKI. In the US, we have osimertinib. What's the optimal initial treatment for advanced non-small cell lung cancer with an EGFR exon 20 insertion? Well, I think that's probably one of the most important questions today. Uh, let's start with the role of EGFR uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors in this population, the currently approved EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We know, and we can say in general, that EGFR exon 20 uh, patients are, are not sensitive 
uh, to this kind of conventional tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We have uh, clinical data, retrospective clinical data that confirm uh, generally that the response rate to these agents are quite poor, ranging from 2 to 28%, and medium PFAs durations not exceeding four months. So uh, we have uh, the conventional platinum-based combos that could be considered the standard of care today. And uh, when we talk about combos, those including Pemetrosets seems to offer better outcomes in terms of PFS and US compared to other combos like Taxan or Gencitamine-based platinum combinations. For me, it's intriguing the role uh, or the potential role of uh, adding an antiangiogenic agent like bevacizumab to a standard chemotherapy in the first line. We have some small reports suggesting that BEP combo could be also an option in terms of PFS compared to standard platinum doublets. And we have a lot of that regarding the use of immunotherapy combinations or alone in the first line setting. These patients have not been included in the a randomized phase three trial, so it's difficult to say that uh, we have enough evidence to make this kind of recommendation today in the first line setting. But th- you know that's a big difference, though, Rosario. I think that's uh, well said. But when we think of our Dell nineteen, our LA five eight R, we know that targeted therapy from the beginning is really our preferred option for EGFR on twenty insertion. Really leaning a little more heavily on chemotherapy, at least at least for now. We do have targeted therapy uh, now approved for this subset of non-small cell lung cancer, finally. The first targeted agent approved here was amivantamab, but not really in the frontline setting. Uh, Amivantamab received accelerated approval by the US FDA in May of 2021. Uh, Cho, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how this drug works and its efficacy? Yes. After waiting for more than 20 years of new drug development, FDA granted accelerated approval to amivantamab, for treatment of post-platinum EGFR action 20 insertion and CLC in May 2021. For our patients, this, I believe, is a way of life after passing through a long tunnel. Amivantabab is a fully human EGFR math by specific antibody targeting activating and reducing EGFR mutations, as well as MAD mutations and amplifications. Amivantabab has multiple mode of action, including immune cell directing activity, blocking of EGFR and MAT downstream signaling pathway by receptor degradation, as well as inhibition of ligand binding. In a chrysalis phase one study, Amivantamab produced objective response rate of 40%, and responses was durable with duration of response of 11 months. Clinical benefit rate was 74%. Responses were objective was observed regardless of patient's clinical factors and axon 20 insertion molecular variants. Median PFS was 8.3 months and median OS was 22.8 months. These numbers of median PFS and OS are believed to be far longer than those reported previously in axon 20 insertion and CLC. Certainly a, a long wait and, and you know long overdue, but glad to have this this agent. I know a lot of those early studies were led by you, Cho. So, so thanks for all the work there. Uh, really important to see the, you know, an effective agent, an effective target agent. Rosario, what about safety? Do you know anything about the, the toxicity of this drug? Well, I, I think we can say that amivantamab has an acceptable safety profile. 
And in fact, grade three advancement or superior advancement happening in around 16% of the patients, mainly RAS, diarrhea, paronychia. And those advancements really leading to treatment-related discontinuation, only 4%. I think also we need to uh, highlight the fact that uh, infusion-related reactions are a common fact when we talk about uh, amivantamab safety profile. These reactions may happen in around 66% of patients, in most of the cases with the first infusion. And again, uh, this adverse event uh, has no impact on the possibility to continue with subsequent treatment. I think this specific adverse event, uh, infusion reactions, require specific training of the whole team, nurses, physicians, and probably a kind of learning curve, but nothing we, uh, as medical oncologists, are not used to, to be honest. Yeah, I, you know, to me, when when you start reading the data before you give the drug, you see these high rates of infusion reactions, and it can be a little concerning. But I think Absolutely. it really, to, you know, yeah, it, it's got to be explained. I mean, Cho, you've given this drug a lot, and you know, my experience is is you know, we do see infusion reactions with that first infusion, but that's why it's split into day one, day two, and I so far have not seen it after day one. Has that been your experience too? Yes, uh, that's the data. And in my experience too, so in, in a subsequent uh, cycle, we rarely see uh, infusion-related reactions. Yeah, so it's important to note that while you do see infusion reactions, these are not allergies. Um, and it really is that first infusion. You know, our own practice here is we definitely tell the nurses, as you, as you mentioned, Rosario, uh, and we really tell the patients we say, yeah. look, expect an infusion reaction. It does not mean that we're we're going to not give this drug. It's not really an allergy. We we give the infusion. We see the reaction. Very often, we'll just sort of stop the infusion, say, go home, come back tomorrow for the second half of the first infusion. And then going forward with the rest of the dosing, it just doesn't happen again. So uh, as long as we know what to expect, it is a little bit of an inconvenience, but I don't think it's anything dangerous. Um, Cho, do we know anything about resistance to amivantamab? Uh, well, much is not known for resistant mechanism to amivantamab. Some da data using plasma ctDNA may be presented from Chrysalis study in the future conference. As in common EGFR mutant lung cancer, I expect there may be on-target mechanisms and off-target bypass tract activation. Even that amivantamab is a bispecific antibody targeting EGFR MAD, on-target resistance mechanism may include membrane protein downregulation in addition to secondary mutations in the kinase domain of EGFR. In the near future, we may be able to provide amivantamab resistance patients with combination therapies specifically targeting identified resistance mechanisms as we do for common EGFR mutant NSCLC patients. Yeah, I think combinations are important for this this agent. It's a bi-specific antibody, like you mentioned, targeting EGFR, MET. We've seen a lot of combination data. I think you've presented a lot of those data, and hopefully we'll start to see this agent in other EGFR mutations as well. Um, but, you know, I think overall, this bi-specific, great activity. It is an infusion. Uh, be aware of the infusion reactions, uh, but certainly a welcome targeted agent to this subset in a long time. We didn't have to wait too long after that for the second agent. Uh, later that year, actually, later in 2021, we saw the approval of the second targeted agent for EGFR exon 20 insertion lung cancer, and that was the tyrosine kinase inhibitor Mobacertinib. Uh, Rosario, can you tell us about the data for Mobacertinib? Well, the new player on the field. 
So we have uh, relevant data uh, coming from this claim, extension cohort of the phase one two trial, and also from a poor platinum treated patient population. Uh, Mobocertin was administered uh, in this previously treated population at the dose of 160 milligram daily dose, oral dose, and the response rate is around 28%. The medium PFS 7.3 months. I think it's remarkable the duration of response. 17.5 months and a median OS of 24 months. Uh, again, uh, no clear correlation with response rate or PFS according to the different genotype. I think this is something we need to figure out in the future. And regarding toxicity, this agent has, uh, has a, a different profile compared to amibandamab. We have probably more gastrointestinal toxicity. The incidence of grade 3 is around 47% leading to dose reduction in 25% of the population and treatment discontinuation in 17% of the of the patients. As you have mentioned, this is a, a new drug approved by FDA, but it has not been approved by, by EMA. Uh, not, not, not yet. So not yet available uh, in Europe, mm -hmm. but you know, different agent. I think different is good here. We want different drugs to choose. Um, that is a pretty high rate of diarrhea. Uh, but, you know, as you mentioned, the duration of response pretty remarkable, showing that you know, if we do anticipate it, if we do manage it uh, appropriately, patients are able to stay on treatment for a very long time. That's a really long duration of response. Now, Cho, if we have both agents approved, you know, in the U.S., we have amivantamab and we have mobocertinib approved, how should we sequence these agents? Do we know, for example, will one work after the other? Uh, Stefan, that's a that's a tough question. Uh, in Korea, both agents are available now, and I don't think uh, these two agents are completely cross-resistant, unlike gefitinib uh, and alertinib in common used by Milton NRCLC, because they are different class of drug. One is bispecific antibody binding to a surface of a tumor cell, whereas the other is a small molecule TKI that binds to the kinase domain of EGFR. Therefore, I think some patients may respond to amivantamab after mobocertinib or vice versa. We may need to conduct a randomized trial to establish an optimal treatment sequence and identify a patient subset who may derive clinical benefit from this sequential therapy uh, in, the, in the future. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that it is good in that sense that they are different. Uh, Rosario, do you have any thoughts about these two different drugs? Okay, I think we have excellent news. For the very first time, mobocertinib and amivantamab are new potential treatment options in pretreated EGFR exon 20 non-small cell lung cancer patients. So uh, the mechanism of action, the differential mechanism of action, IV versus oral administration also makes a difference. Toxicity profile also should be considered as an element of decision. And we need to figure out much better the brain activity of, of these agents. Uh, and even uh, according to the concomitant alterations, if one or the other can be a better option. So again, excellent news, uh, but still a lot to be done. Now, both of these drugs were approved after frontline chemotherapy. So are we going to see targeted therapy moved into the first-line setting for EGFRX on 20 insertions? Sure. Uh, there are two ongoing phase three studies in the first-line setting. Uh, first, a Babylon. A Babylon is a randomized phase three study of amivantamab plus chemotherapy uh, compared to chemotherapy alone. 
in Trimanaive EGFR Exxon 20 insertion NRCLC. Exclaim 2 is a randomized phase 3 study of mobocertinib compared to chemotherapy uh, in untreated EGFR Exxon 20 insertion NRCLC. The patient enrollment is completed, and I expect timeline data uh, from these two trials will be available soon. Please stay in tune. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Rosario, give us a prediction. What do you predict about frontline therapy for EGFR Exxon 20 insertion? Well, that's uh, a difficult question. Well, I think one of the main questions we need to solve is why uh, these agents and uh, this specific subset of patients have this kind of low overall response rate compared to uh, uh, the agents we have in common EGFR mutations. In some cases, maybe the lack of selectivity of spare wild type EGFR, or maybe that we are talking about a very heterogeneous disease. So I, need, I think we need to know much better biologically the disease we are treating. Uh, we are waiting for the trials. I think that the combination of approaches have make sense uh, so far. I, I think this is the probably the way to 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 move forward. But beyond the question of monotherapy or combination in the first line setting, I wonder the role of dynamic approaches, including the use of ctDNA to monitorize the evolution of the disease and to escalate or even de-escalate treatment according to this information. Probably this is uh, the best way to, to move forward in the near future. I like that idea. I mean, this is something we can readily detect, uh, you know, often with plasma as well. So um, hopefully that is something that will inform our treatment in the near future. But I do think it's it's very impressive that we've been able to complete two phase three trials uh, in this relatively uncommon subset and you know, look forward to seeing these data. Um, I'm looking at the clock. I know we're, we're getting close on time. Let me close with a few tougher questions. Cho, you mentioned at the top, there are, are a lot of different EGFR exon 20 insertions. This is not one mutation. It's really a family of mutations. Does the specific mutation have any impact? Uh, as next generation sequencing is becoming available, more and more EGFR exon 20 insertions have been found. So far, more than 100 molecular variants of EGFR exon 20 insertions have been reported. In the Vantamab and Movacertin phase 1 trials, these two agents show responses regardless of different exon 20 insertions. However, we cannot exclude the possibility that some mutations better or fully respond to Vantamab or Movacertin because the number of exon 20 insertions so far evaluated is so small. Further data on differential efficacy of a targeted agent in different axon 20 insertions should be reported in real-world study. Yeah, so stay tuned. We'll be gathering a little more information there. Let's talk about um, CNS penetration. We know that's an important part of our drug therapy these days. Rosario, do we know anything about the CNS penetration or CNS efficacy for amivantamab or mobocertinib? Not too much information. Uh, similarly to other EFR common mutations, about one-third of these patients present with baseline brain metastasis. So this is a key and a relevant element for therapeutic decision. Uh, regarding mobocertinib, the evidence is limited, uh, but it seems that this agent has a limited activity at the brain level. We have some data 
The brain was the first site of progressive disease in around 38% of all patients with progressive disease and around 68% of patients with baseline brain meds. And also little evidence regarding the role of amibantama. Uh, uh, I think this uh, is a specific aspect that needs to be clarified. Assess the activity of all these new agents in untreated and asymptomatic brain metastasis. Uh, uh, we have also new agents that seems to have a more potent activity at the brain level that needs to be explored. Uh, sure. What about adjuvant therapy? You know, in in the U.S., we now use osimertinib after resection for an EGFR mutant lung cancer. What would you do for a patient with a resected, you know, resected stage three A non small cell lung cancer with an EGFR exon twenty insertion? So given that amivantamab or mavacertinib is active in post-platinum axon 20 insertion NRCLC, we may have a temptation to use amivantamab or mavacertinib in EGFR axon 20 insertion patients who receive complete resection, uh, for example, for stage 3 NRCLC. Please don't do that. We still don't have, have data yet. Current standard of care should be even for cycles of adjuvant plat- platinum-based chemotherapy. As in power of uh, 10 or Kino the G- 091-12 data come out, the next question will be, should we give immunotherapy following adjuvant four cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy, particularly in pdl one high patients? Because tumors harboring oncogenic driver mutations generally do not respond to anti-PD-1 therapy, I'm not so confident to strongly recommend adjuvant immunotherapy in axon 20 insertion patients. In my opinion, benefit from adjuvant immunotherapy in these patients may be modest, if any, and treatment should be chosen carefully. All these questions are critical to properly manage our patient after resection and need to be addressed in in an umbrella study like Archimist in the future. Yeah, I think that it definitely needs more study. When we look at the Adora study with adjuvant for sensitizing EGFR mutations, you know, we were blown away with how well the drug worked. What I was just as surprised at was how poorly the control arm did. If we look at just surgery and chemotherapy, the rates of relapse were so high, and you know, in- including in the brain. So I agree with you, Joe. I think that right now uh, we need to see the data, but I do think it's an area where we need data, and you know, we really need to. Uh, a study to look at adjuvant therapy, adjuvant targeted therapy in that setting. Uh, it's my practice, though, sort of looking at Adora and the high CNS failure rates. Uh, it really is my practice to surveil with an MRI of the brain after resection for immunity for mutant lung cancer. I don't know if you're doing that in your practice, Cho. Uh, not. It's not a, a one of the routine practice in uh in my clinic. Uh, it's it's a totally symptom based, and if patient has a uh, CNS uh. Uh, symptom, I do it with brain MRI, but uh, it's not routine practice. Yeah, important to, to keep it in mind. Rosario, we, we heard Joe mention you know, Empower 010, uh, looking at adjuvant atezolizumab. So that's approved for resected 2-3 PDL1 positive in Europe, PDL1 high, um, but didn't really feel that was appropriate for EGFR mutant. Uh, let me ask you two questions. One, do you agree with that in terms of adjuvant atezolizumab here? And maybe in a larger sense, what's the role for immunotherapy overall in EGFR exon 20 insertion? Well, regarding the use of immunotherapy in the adjuvant scenario, I fully agree with you. I don't think we have enough information to make a strong recommendation in this setting. 
uh, we need more detailed information to do this kind of recommendation. I have another concern is that if we talk about sequential approaches, uh, we know that after immunotherapy, we are planning to offer uh, virus immunized inhibitor, like can be more certain, maybe we are increasing the risk to, of development of a specific toxicity. So uh, I have a lot of concerns regarding this indication. I fully agree with with uh, so. Um, for the the global role of immunotherapy in this setting, we know that immunotherapy usually for patients targeted harboring genetic alterations is not the best approach. Again, I think that we need much more information regarding combinations and regarding the subtypes of different uh, EFR exon 20 uh, uh, patients in order to uh, make strong and solid recommendations. This has been a really great discussion. I'd love to keep going, but I do know we're at time here. I want to thank both of you for being so generous with your time and, of course, for all the work you're doing in the field. Uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Byung Chul Cho. Bye. Thank you. And Dr. Rosario Garcia Campello. Thank you so much. It has been a great pleasure. Now I'd like to bring on Marsha Horn, the Executive Director of the Exxon 20 Group and CEO of ICANN, the International Cancer Advocacy Network. Uh, I've been lucky enough to know Marsha for quite some time now. Marsha, thank you for joining the podcast today. Steve, total pleasure. It was great to see you at the IASLC September meeting in Chicago. And you're a celebrity at the Exxon 20 Group because your webinar that you gave to us uh, 2019, thereabouts, was one of the most uh, attended in, in our history. So delighted to be here with you. Oh, it was it was an honor. I remember it very well. Uh Marsha, we're talking about EGFR exon 20 insertions, and now that we finally have two FDA-approved agents and hopefully more on the way, uh, it's it's so important, it's critical to identify these EGFR exon 20 insertion mutations when they are present. Um, question for you, do all patients with advanced lung cancer get tested for EGFR exon 20 insertions routinely? Absolutely not, and it's a tragic uh, situation. Uh, you know, there have been numerous studies on this topic, each one bleaker than, than the last one. You know, ASCO in uh, 2022, uh, Journal of Clinical Oncology, and of the lung adenocarcinoma patients, they studied only 49% had received testing. So half are not getting NGS testing uh, based on that pivotal ASCO study, which is a total scandal. And then Diaceutics, in partnership with the Personalized Medicine Coalition, came out last November with an amazing study, 38,000 patients that they uh, pulled from Medicare claims data, their own data registry, and lab data, and concluded that two-thirds of those patients were missing out on the benefits of personalized medicine because of seven glaring and different clinical practice gaps. So, and, and IASLC did its own study, 300 physicians. They found turnaround time barriers, uh, um, a, a big reason um, for, for no NGS, not having enough information to order NGS testing to begin with, and then a problem uh, that the surveyed physicians had of interpreting those testing results. So, we really have uh, a mountain to climb here. We've got to get more patients uh, tested. The good news is that in the Exxon 20 group, although we realize we're, we're dealing with the tip of the spear, we're not dealing with uh, the, the masses of, of 
EGFR exon 20 insertion mutated patients or HER2 exon 20 insertion mutated patients. We're dealing with the most proactive of the proactive. But the good news is that far fewer are coming to us with PCR testing. Almost everybody now is is uh, NGS report in hand, tissue profiling, and liquid biopsy, or liquid biopsy only if there was some problem uh, collecting tissue. Yeah, we've certainly made a, a lot of progress, and you'd mentioned PCR. We know from from some very nice studies that PCR really misses a lot of these EGFR exon 20 insertions and, you know, NGS is the way to go. It really is a tragedy because we have now targeted drugs, but we can only target what we see and, and you're not going to find them unless you look. So testing really is, is quite critical. Um, a lot of advances. And in 2017, 2018, when we were just uh, getting started, Marsha, you know, we were testing to think about trials because we knew the behavior was different. Now we're testing because we have FDA approved drugs and we're still not getting everyone tested. So Marsha, I guess my question is why, you know, what are some of the barriers to proper testing for EGFR exon 20 insertions here in the U.S.? Lack of education, lack of awareness on the part of many uh, community oncologists. They're, they're working very, very hard dealing in a uh, intense, environment with practice economics issues, with pan-heme, pan-tumor issues, uh, doing everything from uh, thoracic cancers to breast cancer to prostate to sarcomas to melanomas and you name it. And they haven't had time to get up to speed on molecular testing and the benefits of molecular testing. So there's a fundamental lack of awareness, not only on EGFR exon 20 insertion mutations and HER2 exon 20 insertion mutations, but name it, MED exon 14, you know, ALK, ROS1, RET fusions, NRG1 fusions, TRAC fusions. So how do we turn this around? We have to be sympathetic to the community oncologist. Uh, a tremendous amount of effort is going in now in terms of uh, education. Janssen and Takeda have done a magnificent amount of work in clinician and patient education on the imperatives of NGS and not leaving any patient behind in terms of molecular testing. We've got to get community oncologists uh, reimbursed for their time of ordering because it can take multiple calls to pathology departments to get that tissue jettisoned out of the anatomic pathology department, uh, we need them reimbursed for studying the report and for interpreting the report. So we totally understand that the community oncologist is at the, the front lines and, and is, you know, wanting to act immediately. Um, they're the ones sitting in front of the panicked patient who's newly diagnosed and wants really to be treated right away and can't understand why there should be any kind of weight having seen a lot of uh, television commercials about things like immunotherapy. So there's pressure in multiple directions on that community oncologist to act. And what needs to happen instead is the compelling speech from the oncologist to the patient saying, hey, it's worth that two-week wait. Marsha, when we have new drugs approved uh, in the U.S., like amivantamab and mobocertinib, how quickly do we see those implemented in clinical practice? 
That's a fascinating question, Stephen, because that is a new world to me. And I recall when um, amivantamab was approved uh, in in May of, of 2021, I was sitting at my son's law school graduation in Malibu at Pepperdine Law School, uh, baking in the bleachers that May 21st. And I'm texted by one of our favorite people from the Janssen R&D team about the FDA approval, um, you know, that morning on amivantamab. And, you know, that's the day I have to be out of the office. Good grief. So, you know, I was scrambling, waiting for the uh, graduation to start. And luckily, I had about an hour and a half to sit there and try to figure out, okay, who do we have in each of the 71 comprehensive cancer centers? Um, in terms of patients who can immediately, you know, uh, email, uh, call their clinician and say, how fast can we get our hands on amivantamab? And uh, I remember George Simon, you know, at, at Advent Health and I were dealing with uh, getting amivantamab, you know, within a day of the approval. And he looped me into a big email stream with Janelle Gray and Moffitt's um, head of pharmacy services, who is an absolute superstar named uh, Dan Meltzer. And I had no idea, Stephen, that getting the actual drug post-FDA approval would be such a production, but it is. You know, it's pharmacy services having to uh, herd all the cats and corral all the different departments, oncology, nursing, reimbursement, um, this and that, and ending up, you know, getting things officially onto a formulary. And so for an infused drug like that, a complex drug like that, lots of pieces have to be assembled before you actually can, can get the drug delivered to the center. Uh, Janssen did a remarkable job uh, getting that drug quickly out to just about everybody. And then when we had Mobocertinib approved months later uh, in September 2021, also dancing the jig at that approval, because that was, uh, um, you know, gratefully received as well by our patient community, Takeda got that drug out everywhere and in everybody's hands as soon as possible. And I remember, and this is another Moffitt case, we needed Mobocertinib right away. And um, thanks to the great you know, field teams at, at Takeda and the Moffitt uh, specialty pharmacy, we had no problem getting it right away. But it is a production. And if we have another approval down the road in terms of an ABC or, you know, another bispecific or another monoclonal, um, we're, we're going to be absolutely prepared knowing the pharmacy services managers of, of each of the comprehensive cancer centers and really getting our patients prepared for, for uh, accessing the drug as quickly as possible. Arja, a lot of this progress I know has been uh, made from your fierce advocacy work in our last few minutes. Can you tell us a little bit about the Exxon 20 Group and its mission? Absolutely. Uh, we were formed, the Exxon 20 Group was formed in 2017 by an upstate New York EGFR Exxon 20 insertion patient named Kevin Hanlon, very successful entrepreneur, uh, came to us on 
the recommendation of the Health Advisory, which is a top uh, advocacy company in New York City. And with Kevin came his very proactive brother, equally proactive uh, brother, uh, Bob Hanlon, who's on the chemical engineering faculty at MIT. And the three of us uh, were emailing back and forth and were fascinated by EGFR Exxon 20. And these are very much the, the early years of EGFR Exxon 20. And we thought, well, gee, let's, uh, you know, get together some scientists, uh, some clinicians working on this, and maybe we'll have a little working group um, materialize. And this was a case, Stephen, of, you know, if you build it, they will come. And as soon as we announced this, uh, we had patients, we had care partners, we had family members, we had scientists, we had clinicians come. We now have 300 plus in our referral network. Uh, we had molecular pathologists sign up, bench scientists sign up, uh, molecular profiling labs, and then started outreach to industry because we absolutely need industry partners day in and day out. You know, whether we're talking to MedAffairs and ClinOps people on clinical trials or trying to, uh, you know, massage eligibility criteria trial by trial, you know, getting LMD cohorts, et cetera. So we've become a multi-stakeholder coalition uh, and working group. Uh, we have an international research consortium, an Exxon 20 international research consortium led by uh, three top scientists one of whom is a physicist, one a cancer biologist, and one a space biologist, and they cut to the chase. Uh, they have been absolutely marvelous in terms of uh, uh, diving deep into this field and wanting results, and we're going to be getting some results. We want to turn this disease into a chronic and maintenance disease and then vanquish it utterly from the planet. And to do that, um, we need a multi-stakeholder group and, and we're thrilled to have one for EGFR Exxon 20 insertion patients and HER2 Exxon 20 insertion patients. And uh, anyone listening is more than welcome to join. Marcia, I, I know we're running out of time, but I really want to thank you just for, for your time today and for all that you're doing for the field and for our patients. Stephen, Total pleasure. Thank you so very much for having me. And thanks to everyone out there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, IASLC.org under Newsroom. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 